Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Okay, crazy, but it's almost February, which means it's almost March, which means it's election time. The primary election is scheduled for March 5th, and ballots are going to be going out soon. And we're going to be making some big decisions, including which top two candidates should advance in the race for U.S. Senator come November. The last person who held the seat, Dianne Feinstein, held it for more than three decades before her passing last year. Yeah, this is unusual, and these are not term limited. So whoever wins could be there for most of your adult life, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I sit down with KQED politics and government correspondent Marisa Lagos to talk about who's running for California's open Senate seat and what it means for us. How rare is an open Senate seat in California? This is not technically true, but my feeling is that there has not been one in my lifetime as a voter. This really is the first time since 92 that there's been a truly open seat without sort of one candidate who is just like overwhelmingly favored to win. The Senate seat, Marisa, is currently occupied by LaFonza Butler, who was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom. But she's not running, right? That's right. You know, she was a little bit of a surprise appointment. And I think a lot of us, myself included, I will admit, I really expected her to run. Why that is, is not a question that we all sort of fully understand the answer to. I know she talked about the fact that after her appointment, it was really tough on her family. She's a black woman. She's openly gay. She has a daughter. I think that this is a very difficult time to serve. And she apparently just did not feel that she wanted to turn around right after being appointed and run a very tough campaign. So she will only hold this seat for about a year. Let's walk through the four major candidates then. Who is running and what are each of them known for, starting with the Democrats? Yeah, well, let's start close to home here in the Bay. Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee is running. She came up in Oakland politics, organized with the Black Panthers. I have been a consistent progressive who gets the job done. 
I think she's best known for her vote against authorizing force after 9-11. I voted against the authorization to use military force right after the horrific attacks of 9-11. I voted against the Iraq authorization. I said then... And I would frame her as really running, you know, as as a Bernie Sanders type candidate. Medicare for all, uh, very anti-war, came out early for a ceasefire. The only black woman in the race and also the oldest candidate in the race. I took on the president. I investigated him. Uh, I led his impeachment when he... Adam Schiff, Los Angeles Democratic congressman, probably best known for his role in uh, running the first impeachment inquiry of former President Trump. When he incited an insurrection against our country, I served on the January 6th committee uh, to hold him accountable. Former federal prosecutor, he's really running on this kind of defend democracy argument. If Donald Trump is elected president, then we are, and it rhymes with crude. Um, he, is the, he is the gravest threat to our democracy in our history. The best thing that we can do, and I've gone toe-to-toe with him, and if need be, I will go to toe-to-toe with him again to defend our democracy. You know, a lot of his policy positions really center around things like strengthening institutions like the Supreme Court and, and the voting system in order to protect against somebody like Trump. Before I was elected to Congress five years ago, I was a consumer protection advocate. I took on greedy corporations and Washington officials asleep at the wheel. Running on the kind of more populist angle is Katie Porter, Orange County Congresswoman. She's a protege of Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's best known in Congress for coming into committee meetings and uh, holding folks like Chase CEO Jamie Dimon to account with her handy dandy whiteboard. I'm willing to hold Wall Street to account for its failure to build the housing that we need and we can afford, to hold Big Pharma to account for overcharging us for prescription medicines, to hold Big Insurance to account for denying our claims. You know, she's really trying to frame herself as an outsider, even though she's been in Congress. As I said, she really sort of relies on a a much more populist message. She's a single mom of three kids, former UC Irvine professor. um, And she really, I think, has relied heavily on that personal narrative as well as her sense that the whole system is rigged and that a lot of what she wants to do is kind of push back against the power of corporations and also members of Congress. And before we kind of talk about the differences between some of these candidates, there is one Republican, Steve Garvey. Can you tell me a little bit about him and and what he's known for? Yeah, I mean, he is definitely in the mix. The last poll actually had him a few points behind Porter. I think many of you know me. Over 50 years ago, I came to California. Uh, The Dodgers brought me up for the day my dreams came true. So he's a former first baseman for the uh, L.A. Dodgers. He also played with the Padres. He retired back in 1987. So some of our younger listeners may not be as familiar, but I think longtime Major League Baseball watchers do remember him uh, pretty well. Never Run for Office uh, is running as a Republican. One party started to take over. There was only one voice in California. And this vibrant state became a murmur. As a conservative moderate, I thought it was time to stand up. Says he voted for Trump the last two times, but doesn't know if he'll vote for him again. Has been pretty vague about his policy positions, although I would, you know, argue as parroting some kind of familiar rhetoric around border security, homelessness and public safety. But, you know, this is a very deep blue state. 
Republicans have virtually the same number of registered voters as independents. And so I think there's a chance that he could get through this primary in the top two, but it would be a very steep climb for him to win the actual seat. That would be pretty extraordinary, just given the numbers. What is then the biggest difference between these candidates, especially the three Democrats? Isn't that the million dollar question? (laughs) I mean, if you look at their voting records in Congress, there's been a number of analyses. They voted similarly like 90 percent of the time. I do think that that belies some of their differences. But in general, when it when it comes to policy that's actually going to make it to the floor of the Senate, I think they would be in lockstep on most issues. But one area we've really seen a lot of daylight between them is on what's happening between Israel and Hamas and the Gaza Strip. And, you know, we saw some of the differences between these candidates at the debate last Monday. Yes, I called for um, a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. Israel deserves to live in peace with security, free from Hamas and all terrorist attacks. And I'm going to continue to condemn the horrific attacks. Barbara Lee has always been really sort of anti-war. She talks a lot about the fact that what happened after 9-11 didn't necessarily make the U.S. safer in a lot of ways, um, that there is this tendency to get dragged into these conflicts. And she's really framed this as a question of security, not just, you know, for the Palestinians, but the Israelis and the U.S. Killing 25,000 civilians, it's catastrophic, and it will never lead to peace for the Israelis nor the Palestinians. It will spiral out of control like I said it did and would after 2001, and it did. That she feels like what's happening uh, is not doing a service to anybody's sort of safety. No country, after having been attacked by terrorists like Israel was on October 7th, no country could refuse to defend itself. It has a duty to defend itself, and I think the United States should support Israel in defending itself more on on the side of what Israel has been doing would be Adam Schiff, very staunch Israel supporter, says that that we would never, you know, ask ourselves to not respond if we were attacked as Americans, and that he really doesn't see a path to a ceasefire right now with Hamas. Congressmember Porter, uh, some critics have said you've tried to have it both ways on this. You just heard two different worldviews laid out on this. Uh, Where are you? Katie Porter's had a little bit of challenge on this issue. You know, foreign policy is not her strong suit. Uh, As I said, she came up more as a consumer advocate, and I think she's struggled to find a lane on this. She had resisted calls for a ceasefire, and then a few weeks ago kind of put out um, a pretty extensive statement saying that she would like to see a ceasefire however she wants all these conditions met, um, which includes some very sort of high bars that feel very unlikely politically. So I have called for a release for all the hostages, resources to rebuild Gaza, making sure Israel is secure and a free state for Palestinians where they can thrive. So just to be clear, she's calling for a ceasefire right now. You're saying we need to do all this other stuff first, right? The parties to this conflict are Israel and Hamas. Ceasefire is not a magic word. You can't say it and make it so. I mean, recent polling has shown a lot of divisions within the Democratic Party on this question. Younger voters, voters of color, really tend to sympathize more with the Palestinians and oppose the way Israel has responded. Older voters, whiter voters in the Democratic Party tend to side more with Israel. 
And so I do think that that's there's an opportunity there for both Porter and Lee, but one of them's going to have to make it into the top two, I think, to really drill down on that issue heading into November. Coming up, what else differentiates the three Democrats and what role Republican Steve Garvey might play in the race? Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Another issue where some of these divisions also showed were with this issue of earmarks. Can you explain that? Yeah, this is like, I think, super fascinating, but maybe I'm just a dork. Um, Katie Porter, whose, you know, kind of message is that the economy is rigged, government is rigged, you know, it's not working for for regular people, has taken a very hard line against what are colloquially known as earmarks, or maybe in the past pork spending, you might remember it called. Um, you know, this is the process by which elected officials kind of go to the administration in charge, you know, within Congress and make the case for individual projects or other sort of spending within their district. So, you know, this is honestly what a lot of politicians run on. I will bring money back home. Your taxpayer dollars will work for you. The earmarks process actually shortchanges California. Diverse districts and diverse states actually get half as much money. We only get two senators, which means we only get every state gets two sets of earmarks. So the process actually prevents us from getting the share of funding that we need based on our population and based on our problems. Katie Porter thinks that it essentially favors special interest, um, that it's not a good way to do business, that policymakers with expertise in those policy areas should be the ones, you know, making these calls. Um, And so she has not only said she will not, as a congresswoman, um, ask for earmarks for her district, that she would not, as one of two U.S. senators, do the same, and that she wants to see the entire system abolished. What do Schiff and Lee have to say about earmarks? They're unapologetically supportive of them. Uh, Both of them point to money they've brought home to their congressional districts. Uh, Schiff talks about homelessness in L.A. And Barbara Lee actually frames it as a question of equity. She says that this is one of the only ways that you see communities of color, low-income communities and neighborhoods have a say at the table because they can elect people. um, And that she feels that it's a really important tool to continue to get those dollars. Well, Marisa, we just talked a little bit about where some of these candidates stand on the issues. Um, Do we know anything about who is supporting 
these Democrats? Um, do we know anything about the endorsements they've gotten so far? Yeah. So Schiff has really cleaned up when it comes to his colleagues in Congress. He has the support of Nancy Pelosi, former speaker and sort of de facto leader, even though, you know, she's an emeritus now. He has a, a lot of his fellow members of Congress from California are supporting him. Barbara Lee, she's gained support from folks like Reproductive Freedom for All. That was formerly Narrow Pro-Choice. The Congressional Black Caucus is backing her. Katie Porter has a handful you know, of, of local labor unions and others, including statewide the California School Employees Association, Senator Elizabeth Warren. I think very telling, all three of them have the support of the California Labor Federation. Hmm. That is one of the biggest labor groups in the state. That tells me that they think any one of these three would be just fine. One interesting thing, Garvey has no endorsements, and his campaign says he hasn't asked for them. Yeah, well, let's talk just a little bit more about Steve Garvey. How should we be thinking about his role in this race? Democrats should be taking him seriously. While it is, as I said, it would be very extraordinary for somebody with an R next to their name to win statewide. There has not been a statewide Republican elected since 2006. But politics is crazy and the world is crazy. So you can never <laughs> say never, right? You can never say that he has no shot. Who knows? Who knows what he, how he pivots, what the landscape looks like. It was interesting on Monday night. I think we saw all three Democrats really go after Garvey. There are a lot of people in this country that love Donald Trump and think he was a great president. What's your what's your view? It's all a personal choice. As my personal choice, I will make it in the sovereignty of wherever that is. And that's my personal choice. Candidates don't see, have personal choices when it comes to being elected exactly officials. what's got our country. Mr. Here tonight, Garvey, we're going to keep one after another, all three Democrats really piled on and tried to push him on things like whether he would support Trump, like where he stands on things like abortion, uh, health care, you know, how to deal with things like homelessness. What does Steve Garvey say about Donald Trump? Anything to kind of help us place him in terms of Republican candidates? His answer to did Biden win was yes, unequivocally. So he's not an election denier. but. If you listen here, he really is struggling to figure out how to talk about this when he's asked point blank, will he support Trump? Um, and I think he tries, you know, to throw some meat to the base in terms of how he frames Biden as well. When the time comes, I'll do exactly what I said to you. I will look at the two opponents. I will determine what they did. And at that time, I will make my choice. I don't believe Joe Biden has been for good for this country. I heard it said that uh, that Trump was terrible for the world, right? Yeah. He was. That we were less safe. We were safer, yeah. more under him than we are under Biden. I mean, all that said, Marisa, there is still a chance that Garvey advances to the no November election, right? Sure. And you have to think about it as a sort of a math problem. So let's assume that a little under half of registered voters are Democrats and about a quarter are Republicans and a quarter are independents right now. And, you know, these three Democrats will split a lot of that Democratic vote. So there is an opening for him to be in the top two. Of course, we have a, you know, we don't have a close primary system here. It's not by party. It's the top two vote getters. 
Well, Marisa, what are the stakes of this race? This is a six-year term in a seat with no term limits. This is potentially, you know, a lifetime election, a once-in-a-generation election for sure. I think the stakes are who California wants to see representing them in Congress, not just tomorrow or next year, but in the coming years. And what is it that they value in terms of that voice, one of a hundred, only a hundred senators, and who they think is going to be able to, you know, whether it's a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, advocate for the state and the policies and positions that are important to people here. Marisa, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Marisa Lagos, a politics and government correspondent for KQED. This 35-minute conversation with Marisa was cut down and edited by senior editor Alan Montesilio. Maria Esquinka is our producer. She scored this episode and added all the tape. Music courtesy of Audio Network. By the way, make sure you're subscribed to The Bay wherever it is that you're listening so that you don't miss our upcoming coverage of the March primaries and the November general election and everything leading up to it. The Bay is a production of member-supported KQED in San Francisco. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara. Peace. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. 